0: Abba, Father, I will never thank you enough for the way that you work and move in our lives and ask, uh, Holy Spirit, you are here. You are in us. You are welcome to do your work. I pray that you go to those secret places in our hearts where no one else can go, and you would bring truth where there are lies. You'll bring love where there's hate. You'll bring healing where there's woundedness, and lives will be changed through your power. Please work now. Would you anoint and bless this hour, please? In Jesus' name, amen. Christ esteem, the ability to see ourselves the way Jesus saw himself. Self-esteem has everything to do with our ability to see ourselves through the eyes of other people. And if if Cana sees me favorably, then I must be good. If Cana sees me uh, and I'm a problem and she doesn't like me anymore, then I must be bad. And if you have Canaan esteem, it might be good one day, but then it might be bad the next. If you have spouse esteem, depends on the mood your spouse is in, your your esteem can be shattered instantly. So uh, just a reminder of what what those perspectives are like. By way of review, Bruce, a reminder about Kairos time, Kairos and Kronos. So number four, Jesus had an eternal sense of time. And it's interesting you know, you might make a prayer and just say, Lord, would you please do this in my life? And you almost dismiss it like you forgot about it. And then all of a sudden, the kairos moments hit. God's perfect timing, kairos, the fullness of time, as opposed to our concept of time, which is chronos. And let's go, let's go where you're thinking, hours, minutes, seconds, those kinds of things. Jesus had a kind of kingdom clock that he, he turned his ear to, um, Let's jump straight in. Let's talk about, about self-esteem and how dysfunctional that it can get. Luke eleven thirty nine. the Lord said, Now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but inside of you you are full of robbery and wickedness. This is trying to be who you are not, presenting yourself to be something that you're not, whether it's in skill sets, whether it's in... Reputation, whether it's in morality, you're presenting yourself to be something that you're not. That's about self-esteem. Luke 16, Pharisees who are lovers of money, were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourself in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. For that, that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. This is when we try to find worth in identity, in people, and in things. And from an Old Testament perspective, that's called idolatry. That's all that it is. Well, you're trying, to, you're trying to define a greater worth, a greater sense of value, when you're trying to believe that there's greater benefit in what you own, or how good your house looks, or what your body's like, things, or people, if you can get the right people around you you're going to have somehow have worth that is idolatry you're setting up a false god for samuel 16 uh, samuel is thinking like an american he thinks a tall good-looking president is the best president and the lord has to say to samuel no just because one of jesse's sons just happens to be tall and good-looking doesn't mean he's going to make a good king for Israel. Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature because I've rejected him. Soak that one up, please. Just because you're good looking and tall doesn't mean you're acceptable. (laughs) Those are the two qualities that he had. And God says, I'm rejecting him based on those qualities. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. By the way, quick psychology pop quiz. Tell me about the bodies and the faces of the average model on the average billboard in America. What does he or she look like? Size four. Size four dress. And you yeah. said, yeah, yeah. Are they not? Okay. Are they not all the good looking? Is that not the case?
1: Plus,
0: they're manipulated. You know, they're, they're all manipulated. You think a little Photoshop. <laughs> oh, yeah. L.A. <laughs> Did you know that Owen Mills started that? Olin Mills. Sure, sure they would. Ask the old-timers, what the Olin Mills people would do. Yeah, those, so those old family photographs. Huh? They use on the internet a lot. Yeah. I know. They'll Photoshop eyelashes in. <laughs> Come on. They were doing that 50 years ago. You know? It's, it's real stuff. So, all right. What would happen if we as a church or as individuals really lived out the esteem granted us by the Father? Just like Jesus said. What would that look like? Our relationships, ourselves, our relationships, our marriages, what would that look like? What would be unique about us? So uh, let's look at the first slide, and we're going to jump straight in. So again, we're focusing in on now what is the evidence that we as the followers of Jesus live out esteem? A a couple comments, by the way, before I jump straight in on that one. Uh, You know, you might be black and think that makes you better than a white. You might be white and think that makes you better than a black. You might think as a female with your superior corpus callosum and superior hippocampus and amygdala that you're better than a male. OK, it's true. Um, or you might be, you know, you have more money and you think you're better than the poor. Or your ACT scores or something, you know, better or less than. And by default, your worth is depending about those things. Some of us have physical traits that we're ashamed of. Some of us wish this about our bodies, wish this about our that about our bodies. So just as a point of comparison, um, 2017 results in by the American Board of, of uh, Plastic Surgeons. These are the top surgeries that did the top 10 surgeries and or procedures to enhance your body and, and enhance your appearance based on 2017, and this is based on frequency, not on whether it's surgical procedure, just cosmetic. So number one, the most popular enhancement procedure done in 2017 is Botox, with 7.2 million people going through Botox procedures to create an appearance that is not genetically natural. 7.2 million. Next, at 2.6 million soft tissue fillers, other products, other other materials designed to adjust and enhance your physical presence. Uh, Three, chemical peel, chemical peels, 1.3 million. Laser hair removal, over 1 million. Microdermabrasion, 740,000. Breast augmentation. Three hundred thousand, over three hundred thousand. By the way, just a comment there. Uh, you know that I do therapy all week long, right? You would be surprised at the women who comment that husbands put pressure on their wives for enhancement surgeries. How do you think that that impacts her self-esteem, her self-worth? To have that, what's that? Absolutely, absolutely. That's not grace.
2: I also want to say the most real interesting
0: thing about the Botox is you're injecting toxin into your yes Botox. it is a toxin yes yeah, yeah absolutely uh, liposuction 246,000 nose reshaping 218,000 eyelid surgery 209,000 tummy tuck 129,000 um, um, do they do leg extensions surgery do they do, they do that in <laughs> Europe well, Ed, you want to go on a trip <laughs> take a month off, maybe? I, I, I've always wanted to speak German, that's really cool language, so... <laughs> that was rude. You get a rude. So, have fun. What if we settled up on all this stuff? What if we said, you know what, I'm, t- I'm sick and tired of, of self-esteem, I'm tired of the way that it taxes me emotionally what it does to my relationships, I'm tired. What if I took a step toward Christ esteem? And I said, you know what? I'm gonna see myself and value myself exactly the way Jesus Christ saw and valued himself. Well, number one, to do that, you're gonna to have to settle up on faith. And that's a tough one. I mean, it's really, really hard, okay? Uh, some of us with a scientific bent, you have what's called an empirical mindset. Uh, that which is scientifically, can scientifically verify something is real. It's called empiricism. What is real is scientifically verifiable. Well, that's the physical world, but what about the metaphysical world? What about beyond physical boundaries? And stuff you can't get in the test tube. Is that real? If you can't measure it with the five senses and follow scientific empirical principle? Does it cease to exist for many people? The answer is yes. By the way, uh, you know Stephen Hawking has died and it's gotten a lot of press. And what's interesting about some of these great physicists and astrophysicists, and I admit, man, they're super brainiacs. But uh, there's some other guys with an equal IQ putting so much pressure on the scientific, atheistic community. Guess what's happening? Atheistic physicists and scientists and biochemists are having to admit that guys like Stephen Mayer are right. There's something out there that put the DNA that made life on planet Earth possible. And so guess what they're doing? They're saying it was aliens. Quote, unquote, ancient astronauts. I kid you not. Now, what do you think it takes? Greater faith. To do? Believe in Yahweh, the creator of heaven earth, and earth in the Hebrew scriptures? Or an ancient alien <laughs> got in a rocket ship from another planet, Zorg, and flew here and, and somehow put DNA, DNA spermatata everywhere. And... See, and then you ask these complicated <laughs> questions. You know, it's like, when does it end? I mean, it's silly. It's silly, right? So even those who think empiricism is the only answer, they are woefully silenced by the very science they decry as being the answer. Because there is the metaphysical. There's something else. We've got to settle the faith issue. Look at this. It's, it's a simple expression. Mark 120. When Jesus called them, it says, immediately he called them and they left their nets. Or rather, they left their father Zebedee. Zebedee is not a net. They left their father Zebedee in the boat uh, with the hired ser- servants, and they went away to follow him. Luke 17 records this question. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. So that's the only time recorded in all the New Testament where someone asked for an increase in faith. He said, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. He was not kidding when he said that. Faith is real. Faith is powerful. And every one of you is, is expressing expressing faith because you put your body on the chair and you're relaxed and you're not even worried that the chair might collapse under your weight. You have faith in the chair to hold you up. Faith is not that hard. It's everything to do with trust. The followers of Jesus who live out his esteem settle the issue of faith secondly they love as he loved John 15 9 just as the father has loved me I have also loved you abide in my love by the way if it's hard for you to love people maybe it's because you haven't experienced love John 15 12 this is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. I love what John does with light and darkness in his epistle. The one who says he's in the light and yet hates his brother is actually in the darkness. The one who loves his brother abides in the light. Wow. Some of us are so caught up in the bad room that we can't even see how dark it is in there. 1 John 4, 16, we have come to know and have believed the love. We have settled the issue of love. We've come to know it, and we've come to believe the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God, and God (laughs) abides in him. Followers of Jesus love as he loved. And then secondly, followers of Jesus forgive as they have been Forgiven, And this is where it's going to get real intense, okay? Because this is where we are kind of living and dying right now, all right? Matthew 6, in this section, uh, Jesus is actually telling the disciples, this is how I want you to pray. In verse 12, he says, I want you to say this to God, and God forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Then the prayer continues, and at verse 13, it says, Amen. But then there's an addendum at 14 and 15. Just in case we don't get it, there's an addendum. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your Heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. That causes a problem. Because we love those scriptures that says, You know, God takes your sins and he casts them as far as the east is from the west. He takes all of your sins and he puts them behind his back. And we like that. The idea that the blood of Jesus covers all of our sins and we can go, whew, boy, lucky me. I don't have to worry about that stuff. And then you read this, that if we don't forgive, God doesn't forgive us. You mean God takes those things around his back and pulls them around and throws them in our face? Kind of sounds that way. Ouch. Don't like that. It causes some pretty intense theological difficulties when you realize God has the authority to do that. Let's think for a moment about this. Peter says, He comes up to the Lord and says, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. For a Hebrew way of thinking, He's saying, look, you're going to forgive perpetually until you die. It's not hard. It's this absurd number of perfection, 70 times 7. It's total forgiveness for the rest of your life. By the way, uh, some wisdom here in Luke's Gospel, Luke 17, the tradition's a little different. And Luke says that Jesus says that if your brother comes and says, says, I repent, you must forgive him. If he says, I repent. You must forgive them. What do you do when you're, when you're a classic splitter and you, you, you've got this good room, bad room schema and, and you just turn your back on somebody and it feels good to do that. It feels good to isolate and penalize people. The good room, bad room. What do you do when, when you're that person? You're a classic splitter. My name is Chris Perry. I have a new life in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I am a classic splitter. And by his grace, hi, by his grace, by his grace, I'm working through my tendency to split. Man, I can judge with the best of them. I can. What do you do when you're faced with the white throne, at the white throne judgment of God? And you're looking God eye to eye. And God dispenses forgiveness to me in direct proportion to the way I dispensed forgiveness to others. God dispenses to me forgiveness in the very way I extended forgiveness to other people. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Broken relationships are profoundly painful and the damage can be so deep that we think it's unrepairable and it hurts horribly. And one way to make sense out of that is to create this ego defense schema and live in a two-room house, a good room and a bad room. By the way, I'm a classic splitter because of what happened to me birth to five. My father, my biological father, was such an evil man, the only way I could make sense out of that as a four-year-old and a five-year-old was to create a two-room house that split right down the middle. And I could put my dad in the bad room because it makes sense. He was bad. He did bad things. Therefore, bad things will happen to him. And they did. I don't have to be, I don't, I don't live in the bad room. I live in the good room. And I can put a petition up between me and my dad. And it made me feel safe. Does this make sense? We all do it. There's a little splitter in all of us, you know. Some of us are more quick to admit it, maybe. A little splitter in all of us. So it made sense to me. It made me feel safe. So let me tell you the story. This is Matthew 18. A king decided to, to call his servants in for debt collection. And he called in one servant, and the servant owed him 10,000 talents. Okay? Now let's do it for, for you math brains. A talent was worth over fifteen years' wages. Ten thousand talents at over fifteen years' wages times days is fifty-four million seven hundred and fifty days of labor that that servant owed the king. That's over 121 generations. Excuse me, 121,000 generations. It would take 121,000 generations of constant labor every day to pay that back. It's absurd debt. By the way, you know what kind of debt it is? Is it money? No, it's called morality. It's called sin. It's a sin debt. That's the point of the story. Okay? The guy falls on his knees, begs the king for mercy. And the king, with compassion, forgives him 54,750,000 days of labor. That man goes out to the street. I bet he was walking three feet off the ground. Can you imagine that kind of debt forgiveness? Right? And he bumps into a fellow slave that owes him 100 days of labor, a 100 denarii. A denarii is one day's wage. And he demands payment. The guy says verbatim, have mercy on me. I'll pay you back everything. And he chokes the man, bends him over and says, no, I'm not going to forgive you. I'm not going to wait. Pay me now. And, he, and and word got back to the king. Do you know what the percentage of 100 days of Labor are in comparison to 54 million 750 days. Point <laughs> zero 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 one eight three. We're talking about an absurd fraction, absurd fraction, in comparison to an absurd number. The average Jew couldn't even get their mind around 54 million 750,000. They couldn't even get their mind around that idea. Now, we can because we have big, powerful calculators. Cool, right? Not them. It would be mind-blowing for them. Okay? And the man refuses to accept the, the pleas and demands payment. Word gets to the king, and you know the rest of the story. Okay. What keeps the door to the, to the grace room closed? What keeps it closed? When you become a Christian, a third room forms. It's called the grace room. Okay. The, the, the bad room is dark and lonely and bitter. And guess what? The good room is dark and lonely because eventually somebody's going to hurt you and they're going to be kicked out to the bad room. Okay. Both rooms are very dark and very lonely. It's the grace room where relationships flourish. A relationship with yourself, with your spouse, with your children, with your friends. What keeps the door to the grace room closed? What keeps it closed? I'm going to offer the following as talking points. Number one, pride. Pride. Number two, a cruel, and vindictive spirit because I've got to tell you, there's some people that just enjoy being mean and, and they are empowered in their ability to be cruel and the grace door stays closed. They have pathological bitterness. I mean, it is really dysfunctional bitterness. I need to give you a heads up about bitterness. Uh, there's something called the catecholamines. The catecholamines are a peptide group that, uh, are, that form the primary stress hormones to get you ready for fight and flight, like norepinephrine, adrenaline, and cortisol. And when you're bitter, your, your, hippocampus, your, uh, your hypothalamus, pituitary gland, adrenal glands, are on high alert, and they kick in, and they're excreting stress hormones in your body because it thinks it's time for a fight, <coughs> or it thinks it's time to run from the fight to do something to survive hide fight flight, freeze do something and when you're a bitter you are sending a signal for a stress response in your body and guess what the problem is you can't punch out your problems and you can't run from your problems and you can't hide from them and bitterness is eating you alive and you've got catecholamines in your body at high levels and you're exhausted all the Bitterness is toxic, and splitters who are bent to throw everyone and everything in the the bathroom can be very unhealthy people physically, mentally, and emotionally. You have unrealistic expectations. I'm sorry, cats don't bark and dogs don't meow, and you cannot control your spouse. You can't control your kids, and you can't control your friends Unrealistic expectations keep the grace room door closed. Pathogenic religious belief. I'm telling you, there are things our parents teach us that are wrong. Just wrong. And sometimes we believe lies, and we we think it's the teaching from the Bible. How about this one? God helps those who help themselves, young man. Do you hear that? God helps those who help themselves. Okay, Bobby, I'll try harder, you know. Is, can it, does anybody know the name and address on that verse? God helps those who help themselves. Uh, it's not in the Bible. <laughs> it, you know, some little smart aleck mommy or daddy made that up a long time ago and we've been using that little chestnut for years, right? Yeah. Well, it's not true. It's pathogenic religious belief. That's not in the Bible. In fact, the truth is, Debbie and Gordon, God helps those who can't help themselves. That's why it's called grace. Because <clears throat> we can't handle life. Some of us refuse to believe, watch this one, we refuse to believe that the people who put, put us in the bad room are wrong. Some of you are so, you've been in the bedroom so long, you think you it's, it's like where you live. The bedroom is a normal place for you. Or you're feeling dominant or mood dependent. Yeah, I'll put you in the good room when I feel like it. Uh, I'm waiting for the feeling to unlock my life, you know. Or you're a control freak. I'm sorry, that wasn't nice. You love control. You just, you know, because you can do a good job running the universe. And by golly, if you could just be Bruce Almighty, that might make a good title for a movie. If you could just be Bruce Almighty and you could run the universe and keep the planets in alignment to your satisfaction, then you might let some people out of the bad room. Your conditions, you give terms and conditions. Well, I'll let you get close to me, but here's the rules. Or you're projective, you have a projective personality. You are the shamer, blamer. You've got the, you've got the syringe, it is loaded with the toxin of, toxin of blame, and you are really good at sticking people and shooting them up with guilt. You are a blamer, shamer, you're good at it. Or you're the introjective personality and you are the blamed and the shamed. And you, and you just say, all right, go ahead, give me the shot. You're right, it's all my fault. And some of us learn to do that, by the way, as little children, you know why? Because we just want mommy and daddy to stop fighting. We just want the pain to stop. Why does mommy hate daddy? Why does daddy hate mommy? Why can't we have peace in our home? Okay, it's probably my my fault because my mom and my dad keep saying that I'm an annoying, lousy brat and, and I just need to shut up and go away so they could be happy. So it must be my fault. And children learn introjectivity by comments that parents give us. And we form this good room, bad room, and we go, I'm the problem. I'm, I'm the reason why mommy's not happy. I'm the reason why daddy's not happy. And I, I put myself in the bedroom. And the walls go up, I isolate, I self-condemn, and that becomes my comfort place. Or you have a pathogenic view of self that just leads to pathogenic treatment of people. Or in other words, hurt people, hurt people. Those things keep the grace room door shut, tight. What are some things that open it up that, that people who are good that sometimes do bad things or bad people who are struggling to do the good thing can find themselves at home in the grace room? What are some things we can do? Number one, Take yourself out of the bedroom. <laughs> you want to open the door to the grace room. Take yourself out of the bedroom. Number two, realize that you are no better than anybody else. You don't have the moral high ground, and I don't care what your IQ is like. You don't have the moral high ground. Matthew, uh, uh, James, two ten. There are six hundred and thirteen laws. If any man keeps all the law and transgresses in one, he's guilty of all. There's not a person in this room, especially me, that has the moral high ground. I don't, you don't either. Number three, you wanna open the door to the grace room, you need to remember that because we don't have the moral high ground, we don't have moral authority. We don't. And we've gotta be so careful how we judge Romans 2, For the very thing in which you judge one another, you condemn yourself because you do the very same things. If your spouse is irritating the snot out of you, look in the mirror. You might be doing the very same things. Romans 14. Why do you regard your brother with contempt? Oh, how's that? There's the bad room. Why do you kick your brother in the bad room? Regard him with contempt. For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. I ask you again, if you are eye to eye with almighty God, and you realize he's going to dispense forgiveness to you in direct proportion to the way you dispense forgiveness on earth, what's that gonna be like for you? How's it gonna work out? James four, he who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. If you think you have the moral high ground and if you think you have the moral high ground resulting in your moral authority, guess what you're doing? You become a judge of the law. You, You become a judge of God's moral code. And when that happens, you are putting yourself in the seat of God and that is serious, serious business. The fourth reason or fourth way that you can open the grace room is to realize you follow Jesus. Isn't that how you identify? Mm-hmm. Don't you say that you're a Christian and feel good about it when you say, I'm a Christian. Amen. Yeah, I feel good about it. Then if you do follow Jesus, remember, you've settled this. Hi. Followers of Jesus... They memorize and repeat his words. They imitate, replicate his actions, the way he handled people. And they do so with his his heart motives to the best of their ability, all by the spirit. Those are the ones that follow Jesus. That's enough. That's enough to help us throw the door to the grace room wide open. That's enough. I wanna stop here, the hour's late. And I've got a video to show you that I think will be very, very worthwhile. Um, These are my favorite pair of handcuffs, I've got several. Uh, These are a gift by Tom James, by the way. I want you to to get something about, about forgiveness. I've had clients in my office, through tears, they would say to me, Chris, if I forgive the person that did this and this to me, it makes it, act, it makes it seem like it's okay, like it's all justified, like what they did. And I bring out the cuffs, you know, at the right time in the session. I say, "Look, well, why, why do you, why why does forgiveness equate with somebody being exonerated or something? It doesn't at all." And I tell him about the comment that Brian Pope made here several months ago, and I laughed and I said, "Brian." Have you ever taken handcuffs off of guilty people? You know what Brian said, do you remember what he said? He laughed and said, every day, Mm -hmm. all the time. time. Brian Pope takes cuffs off of guilty people every day. That's what cops do, right? That's forgiveness for us. You unlock the handcuffs off a guilty person, the person that hurts you deeply from the grossest forms of abuse, child abuse, it doesn't matter what it is. Forgiveness is taking the handcuffs off a guilty person and letting them go. This is what it means. You are the body of Christ. Your gifts are profound. Speak as though the Spirit of God is speaking in you. What are some other ways we can keep the grace room door closed or other ways that we can open the grace room door up? What would you say?
2: I tend to think of forgiveness more as taking the handcuffs
0: off yourself. <coughs> That's good. Because when you don't forgive
2: someone, you're holding on to that hurt and it damages yourself. Yes. Whether or not the other person is sorry or not is irrelevant. Yeah. Yeah. And to let them go and to free yourself of that pain yes. is what helps yourself. Sure, sure, it, yes. You know, what the other person done is up to them. Grace, I like the definition of unmerited favor. It's something we don't deserve, but
0: we get it anyway. Yeah. In Pennsylvania, the best
2: example of that was uh, a few years ago. Uh, there was a man who went into an Amish schoolhouse and murdered several of the little girls. The Amish community got together and raised money for a scholarship, and, and then the man killed himself, a scholarship for his children. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I remember that and the headlines, in addition to that, 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 he, uh, that he was forgiven. And that they, they pronounced that to his family, absolutely. So, bitterness is a bit like drinking poison and expecting your enemy to die, right? You've heard that one, it's true. It's, forgiveness is healthy. <laughs> it's just, the grace room is healthy. It's really, really healthy. So, someone else, why does this matter? And I know, I know it's late. Thank you for not being so hard on the schedule. Yes, sir, James. Uh,
3: What will go a bit on the subject here. When you talk about being and bad and whatnot, what you realize is how fragile it all is because we like to think of ourselves as good people and the people as intrinsically bad people. Yes.
0: And I, I don't recall
3: and those students up into and, students mm. and they had to stop it because they were Yes. It yeah,
0: violent. power power. Yeah. And
3: yeah. then was the um, electricity, wasn't it? I can't remember who did that one. But they increased the voltage, kept
0: increasing.
3: Yeah. So yeah. yeah. And it,
0: v- vindictive, sick and vindictive, vindictive people, yes.
3: So I think to myself, you know, about like um, Prison, uh, prison camps in World War II, Jewish prison
0: camps can not take yourself are but it would, not it? Yeah. In the right circumstances, it Yeah, yeah. It? Yes, yes, sir. What <laughs> what a human is capable of. Yeah. We don't have the moral high ground, James. We don't. Did you see in the news the, the, fo- the black and white photo of a little girl? She's 14 in Auschwitz, and they took a photo of her as her identification card to be in Auschwitz. And she had just been beaten. And her lip was split, two splits and bloodied, and they snapped the foot, and the look of trauma on a 14-year-old little girl's face when that shutter was snapped, horrific, horrific. I I, I want you to know, uh, Christ's esteem changes everything, okay? And it gives you the ability to treat people in healthy ways. And if you are self-condemned and have a pathogenic view of self, you're gonna pass that right on to your family, to your friends, uh, colleagues, it it doesn't matter. You're gonna be nigh onto impossible to live with, all right? When you have a pathogenic view of self, you are outside the will of God, all right? The scriptures make it so plain that for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that if whoever, anyone who would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. The only one that can heal, as James said so very well, this fragile, like it's just a thin line between us becoming another Hitler, Mm -hmm. a thin line between us becoming somebody that we would think would be the most foul person on earth, it's not that far away. Okay? The only one that can change the human heart is Jesus Christ. Amen. And that's it. And as I've said, if you can find a better Savior with a better social ethic, a better theology, go follow them. Enjoy. I hope it works out for you. But on my journey, my search, I find no one like Jesus. No one like him. None. There's a video I want you to see uh, and I'm so sorry it's late. We need honestly we need to go another couple more hours. This is life changing. This is a video that Andrew Peterson, thank you Martha Jane for showing us to me. Andrew Peterson wrote a song for his little girl who struggled with self-esteem and it is beautiful. Stephen please play it.
1: So lay down.
0: Little girl on the piano bench was his daughter. Isn't that beautiful. That little boy playing the drums is his son. I wish Andrew Peterson was my dad. <laughs> That'd be cool. <laughs> I wish that. Could so, you know, if you if you keep putting yourself in the bad room, you need to realize that the goodness of God and kindness of God applies to you too, and it's okay to be kind to yourself. You can do that. So. The bedroom is a dark and cold and lonely place. By the way, can I give you a little hint about spotting a splitter? Listen to what they say. Listen to how they talk. And if you see somebody that has a complaining, critical spirit, a complaining, critical spirit, you can just pretty much bet they're splitters. Complaining, and criticizing are typically a dead giveaway of a splitter. It's got a bunch of people jammed up, packed out, bad room. It's just really common. So, First John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful. He is righteous. He is faithful. He will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He loves us that much. You know, I, uh, when, when we get the big church and I have an auditorium that can seat, say, 30,000, 40,000, you know, one of those big jobs. We're going to have a nice altar, and we're going to have lots of room, and we'll get to call everybody forward and pray together in a big holy huddle. It'll be special. Okay. For now, I want to to tell you this. Your chair makes a perfect altar, okay, And, and it'll fit you just fine. I want us to close our eyes, and maybe you need to gesture with your seating posture or gesture with your hands, that you are willing to receive the forgiveness of God and you're willing to throw the door open on the grace room. Throw it wide open and move yourself into the grace room and move the people that have been in bondage and, and you've had them shackled, chained to the bed, like that psycho family in California, had the kids chained to the bed. You've got people chained up in the in the, in the bad room for decades. Time to let them out. Set him free. Time to put him in the grace room. Abba Father, Holy Spirit, break the chains and the bondage of bitterness, the iniquity of hate, the iniquity of pride, the the pathological mess that comes when we think we have moral high ground. God, would you teach us how beautiful, how wonderful the grace room is and that we need to be kind to ourselves and put ourselves in the grace room. We need to be kind to other people and put them in the grace room too. Please do your deep work as only you can do. Please, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.